In this season of Advent, we have a variety of readings that tell us about the coming of Christ and the, the life that he brings about. And this week, we are reading Isaiah 35, which tells us of the life to come that Christ brings. We'll have Evelyn come and read for us. Evelyn, Evelyn would you read Isaiah 35? The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with a vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. We are continuing in our Advent series. We're looking at a number of passages in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, if you remember last week, there was a visit of uh, the angel Gabriel to Mary. There's all these extraordinary promises made. And we are sort of continuing in the story. What happened to Mary after Gabriel visit? What did she think? What did she say? What happened in her life? That's where we are picking up the story this morning. You see, we are in Luke chapter 1. Uh, we're going to read it first, and then I'll be back in a moment. Renee's going to come and read it for us. Renee, if you would. Luke 1, 46 to 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. All right, we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on this text together. I have a question for you. What would make you celebrate and sing 
loudly, wildly, and without inhibition? When was the last time you were at a party, at a, at a celebration, an event where people sang wildly, loudly, without inhibition, and where no alcohol was involved. Uh, when I was just out of university, I was invited by a friend to attend a Buffalo Sabres playoff hockey game. Uh, their family, they lived in, in St. Catherine, so their family had tickets. One of their children was unable to go, so I got to go in his place. Now, I am not, and I, and I was not, a Buffalo Sabres fan. But for that one night, we were all Buffalo Sabres fans because it, it was, a, it was a, a playoff hockey game. You know, who could resist? It was one of those games, very tight, hard checking, people just throwing their bodies in front of the puck, all that stuff. And at the end of the third period, it's tied, 1-1. So sudden death, playoff hockey, you know, doesn't really get any better than that for, uh, for sports fans. And the, of course, the action goes back and forth. And then I think it was about five minutes into overtime or so, Buffalo scores. And they win this, this huge game. It's game, game five, I think, of, of the series. And the arena goes just bananas. People are hugging. You're hugging complete strangers. There are unidentified objects like being thrown over your head and being thrown back over your head. The music is blasting. You can't hear anything. All the fans are chanting, Buffalo, over and over, all the way out to the car, like outside of the arena on the streets. What would make you celebrate and sing loudly, wildly, without inhibition? Well, what if you woke up tomorrow and your house mortgage was paid off. A, a mysterious, wealthy stranger had done so. What if it was your sports team, your political party, who scored a massive victory? What if an estranged son, a strange daughter, suddenly came home? See, the song in front of us this morning, Mary's song, it's been chanted in monasteries. It's been set to music by the all-time greats like, like Bach and others. But, but the tenor of the song is mostly like an uproarious celebration rather than a quiet church service. Mary bursts into song. Words aren't enough. Words cannot encapsulate what's going on in her heart. She has to sing. It's a, it's a shout of triumph. It's a, it, it's a shout of victory long before triumph and victory you know, will happen at the crucifixion, at the resurrection, even though Jesus is sort of still forming as a human. This birth of this baby will signal a change to the world. We're going to look at Mary's song under two headings this morning. The first is God's grace to Mary, and then we'll talk about God's grace to all. Now, you've probably heard, heard this called the Magnificat. In fact, if you had like a paper Bible, it's usually labeled something like that. Uh, Magnificat is, is a Latin word, which means magnifies. And if you kind of read the first line of the song, you can kind of see where it's from. It's from that first line. So before we get too deep into this Magnificat, what inspires the song? Well, remember I said the angel uh, met with, uh, came, came to Mary, told her a bunch of things, and immediately after that, Mary went to visit her relative Elizabeth. Um, and, and so she, she travels from where she is uh, in Nazareth to Judea, to the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and right, the verses right before this say, as Mary comes into the house and as Mary greets Elizabeth, the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John, the six months old, not, not old, six months into the womb or whatever, he leaps or he gives like this big kick. And then Luke says, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. And she recognizes, before Mary says even a word to her, she recognizes that Mary is carrying the Messiah. And Elizabeth tells Mary, you're, you're particularly blessed among women. And that is when Mary bursts into song. 
So the, the lead up is this Elizabeth, another human, but by the power of God recognizes Mary is carrying Jesus the Messiah in her womb. It's proof to Mary that everything Gabriel had told her, it's all coming true. It's all going to happen just as the angel had said. And so this first section I'm calling God's grace to Mary. Well, why is that? Because if you look at all the pronouns in verse 46 to 49, they read like this, my soul, my spirit, my savior, and then the, the pronoun me or whatever, the, me is used twice in verse 49. So at the beginning of this, these first few verses, Mary is not speaking of what God is doing in general. She is speaking of what God is doing for her. And I will suggest to you this morning, it is important in the Christian life to move from the understanding, yes, God is working in the world somewhere, to God can and he does work in particular lives. Christianity is not an impersonal idea, but it's a relationship that extends to individuals, to, 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 to us on our own. Many aspects of faith are communal. You're sitting in a large room with a bunch of people all staring in the same direction. There's a lot of parts of communal faith, but there are important individual components to what we believe. And you have to believe for yourself. But what, what has God done for Mary? How is she responding? Look at verse 46. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, in the sort of the world of the Bible, soul and spirit, they aren't very different. They're kind of synonymous or they're used somewhat interchangeably. They both represent the inward self, uh, the true self, the part of you that, that is very real and exists but cannot be seen. And so what's going on here is this is repetition. And the repetition is for emphasis. Not that the soul and spirit are doing wildly different things. She's saying, um, uh, or Mary's saying, I'm being moved to the depths of my being. My, my inner self, I'm rejoicing on, on this deep level. There's a whole person delight in what God is doing for her. Does your whole self rejoice in what God has done or is doing for you? Now, in churches like ours, uh, we're, we're in, and like we run in reformed circles, reformed churches tend to emphasize, and I would even say overemphasize, the life of the mind. It's, it's, a, it's our largest priority before. How many things can we learn about theology and God? Intellectual life, intellectual belief, it's important. We don't pass over it. But when we only speak about what we know, that's too narrow. That's too narrow for what the Christian life ought to be. And what we see in Mary here is this question. Are we joyful in our inner beings, in our inner self, in what God is doing? Is all of you, your whole, your whole you, engaged and responsive to God? This is what Mary's saying. Her whole self is rejoicing in what God has done. Second, uh, Mary's humbled by what God has done. She sees the magnitude of it. If you look in verse 48, she says that God has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. There's again a kind of repetition here, humble estate plus servant, both kind of emphasize the lowness Mary feels in comparison to God. There's a note of amazement in these lines from Mary. There's a who me kind of sense to what she says. She has a hard time still believing that God would choose her. I mentioned this last week, but just in case you weren't here, Mary's from Nazareth, which is Nowheresville. It's like a place that, that no one's really heard of, even inside of Israel. Uh, she is nothing that outwardly commends her as an extraordinary person. And now she's pregnant out of wedlock. And particularly in that day, a major social strike against her. And so she's amazed. She's astonished. She rejoices that God would choose her. But I will, I will tell you, this note of amazement, 
that God would be kind is something that ought to extend to all Christians. You know, when the Apostle Paul speaks about his conversion, he will note, well, Jesus loved me. Jesus sort of chose me, chased me down. When I was the chief enemy of all God's people, he said, I was a violent man. I was an angry man. And Paul would be like, it's still kind of unbelievable that God would choose me. See, to those who've understood the gospel, understand that God loved us simply because he loved us, not because we had things in us that would commend us to him, that ought to leave us amazed. Do you know the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem? It's one of the ones we sing somewhat regularly. The fourth verse I find interesting, and I'm not sure, we, we sing it quickly, the, the verses, you know, fly by us. Listen carefully to what, it, what, we, what we sing. We didn't sing it today, but when, when we sing this hymn. It says this, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray, cast out our sin and enter in, and listen, be born in us today. Be born in us today. That's a provocative thought. We're essentially asking, God, can we have a Mary-like experience? What Mary, felt, what, Mary, what Mary felt, what Mary thought, that God would descend and work through her. We're saying, can, can we have that? There should be this sense uh, in, in the Christian of amazement that God would choose us. Why? Because we're, we're aware of how often we mess up, how utterly human we are. There's, there's often this growing awareness of how great God is and how sinful and mundane we are. It leads to this rejoicing. So we have God's grace to Mary. It's seen by this whole praise, whole, whole, whole delight, and this note of amazement. And third, by Mary's special place in history. Look at the second half of verse 48. Mary says, Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. That word behold means look. It means, whoa, what is like, you know, when you see like flashing lights, like what is going on over there? Mary is expressing a, a, some shock, surprise, that she will be known throughout all the generations, that thousands of years later will be in a room like this, reading her name off and talking about her experience. She is particularly blessed. She gets to bear the Messiah. See, in a lot of ways, as I've already tried to explain this morning, Mary is a model for how God works in all of us. But in this other way, Mary is, of course, a one of one. She's pretty unique. Uh, even though we sing, we want Christ to be born in us today, but we know it's not going to happen physically the way it was for Mary. Mary occupies a unique spot in Christian history as the mother of Jesus. But this is the summary of the first section. God is showing special individual grace to Mary. She delights in it. And I'd just like you to ask yourself this question this morning. Can I read the first few lines of this Magnificat in an honest way? Does my soul, my spirit rejoice in the Lord? Have I experienced the grace of God humbling me? Do I feel personally blessed by God? Is the mighty one doing great things for me? because the offer is extended to all of us in the gospel. But it's a question to ask yourself. Let's move to part two, God's grace to all. Now I will suggest to you, in this section, the Magnificat stops making intuitive sense, and I'll tell you why. The first part, we're like, okay, I can understand why Mary feels this sense of personal thanksgiving and praise. She has a, a, a miraculous baby growing in her womb. That's amazing. Her relative Elizabeth understood that this baby was the Messiah without Mary telling her. That's also amazing. I can understand why Mary feels like giving God praise for what God has done for her. The hard part for me to understand is 
Well, why does the rest of the song focus on what God is doing in the world? It's about God showing strength and scattering the proud and filling the hungry and showing mercy to Israel and more. And like Mary lives during the heyday of one of the most powerful and enduring empires the world has ever seen. Like the Romans are just being Roman. Like they're, they're ruling with absolute might and authority. The empire is unquestioned. They were strong. They were immensely proud. They were mighty. Israel was under their thumb. And it's sort of hard to square this Roman world with what Mary's singing about. So what I want to do is a couple of things as we look at this. I want, to, I want to look at carefully what's Mary actually singing, what she actually sang. And then I want to talk about what it means for the people who lived in the Roman Empire as a province of the Roman Empire. And then finally, we're going to think about what it means for us. So let's look, let's kind of, we're going to work through it piece by piece. What's she singing? Look at verse 46. Now, I know we're kind of going back to the beginning, but Mary's praise to, to God is offered to God, and God is named a few different ways. First, you see Mary calls him Lord. That means like master, owner, ruler of everything. And then in ver- still in verse 46, Mary calls him God, my Savior. So not just a ruling God, but a God who is coming to rescue, a God who is coming to save. And then down in verse 49, she calls him the one who is mighty. So that's about God's strength, his power to accomplish his will. So Mary sings about a God who reigns and rules, who's on his way to save, and who has the power to save. All three components. Imagine you wrote a song about a hero who is coming to rescue you from a dreaded enemy, except you find out partway through the hero is a weakling. It's like, well, that's not helpful. It doesn't matter that they are coming to save me. They're just going to you know, get captured as well. They, they can't help you. Or imagine you wrote a song about a mighty heroic being, but they had no interest in saving you. Well, then all their power, all their might means very little. It's not going to be leveraged on your behalf. But Mary sings to a mighty ruling God who is on the way to help, who does have what is necessary, the power to help. What is this God going to do when he comes? Mary lists a bunch of things. Verse 50, he's going to show mercy to any who fear him. Now, that's an interesting way to begin. It's not what I would have chosen. (laughs) If I was telling the story of a person in deep trouble and they had no hope and they're imprisoned by an enemy and there's a hero coming to save them, he's going to come to rescue them. My next logical move is to say, when that hero gets there, he's coming in guns blazing. He's going to show up. He's going to kick some bad guy butt. But Mary says, oh, the one who is coming to save, who has the power to save, he's going to show up in mercy. This Savior is different. He's not, he's not bent on destroying the wicked because it's going to be really fun to destroy the wicked. He is tilted towards mercy. Now, of course, we say, and Mary's very clear about this, the mercy isn't given to everyone. It's given to those who fear him to those who are waiting for his salvation. It's very easy to picture Jesus as a universal mercy giver, a sort of divine Oprah. You get a car, you get a, you know, know, just kind of handing things out to everyone. But we see here, Jesus is divisive. Not everyone is going to want to be with him, to be in his kingdom. If you come on the 31st, you know, two weeks from today, we're going to read the prophecy of Simeon talking about there's rising and falling in Israel because of Jesus. Both are included, rising and falling. His mercy is only for those who fear him. But what else is God up to in the sending of Jesus? If you look in verse 51, it's a show of strength. 
Now, that's an interesting way to think about the advent of Jesus. Normally at Christmas and in all the, the incarnation sermons, we think of God coming as a baby as a show of condescension or of weakness. You know, little helpless baby. But Mary says, no, no, no. The incarnation is a show of strength. It's a power move by God coming as a baby. It's an interesting way to think about it, but if you picture the world as being in the hands of darkness, uh, the forces of darkness and evil, then the birth of Jesus is a sort of cosmic D-Day. God is landing on the shores of the enemy. He's signaling an invasion is about to take place. So Mary says, no, no, it's not a show of weakness. The incarnation is is a sign of strength. It's a power move. Still in verse 51, In the incarnation, Mary says God is scattering the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. The coming of Jesus is not a good day for those who trust in themselves. And I'm not speaking of that sort of general good and healthy sense of yourself. I'm just saying those who view themselves as the ultimate sort of authority and arbiter of the world those who look down on others for not being as wise or as accomplished as them, to to these, the incarnation is not good news. Now, why would that be? Why is the incarnation tough news for the proud? Because if God is sending himself to rescue humanity, it means we need rescue. If we need rescue, it means we can't save ourselves. Help from the outside is the only hope. Therefore, not encouraging news for those who trust in themselves. The coming of Jesus means the scattering of the proud. Verse 52, the sending of Jesus is bringing down the mighty from their thrones. Pretty similar to the statement about the proud. The kingdom of Jesus is going to upend normal systems of power and privilege. When Jesus grows and begins to teach, he will say, first will be last, the last will be first. Those who have a throne in this life are the ones most threatened by having the most difficult time accepting the existence of another king. King Herod, of course, feels so famously threatened by Jesus' existence that he slaughters a number of babies and toddlers trying to get to Jesus before he could grow up. The mighty are displaced from their thrones because the king of kings is coming. And his kingdom will be this rock that will knock all the other kingdoms to the ground and it will grow into a mighty mountain that fills the world. This is the vision we we read in the book of Daniel. But kings with thrones are under threat. Still in verse 52, the coming of Jesus exalts those who are in humble places. This is the other side of the, the, the first will be last. The last will be first. God will offer salvation to any who will accept it. And there is something about being poor, something about being needy, something about being a person in a humble place that readies a person for the kingdom of God. Status in the kingdom of God will have nothing to do with one's class, vocation, wealth, connections. The humble, the lowly, they're the ones who are going to be exalted. Verse 53, the hungry will be fed while the rich will be sent away empty. Again, this is a reversal of the natural order. Normally, it is the rich who eat good things while the poor are sent away hungry. Not so in the kingdom of God. Everything's backwards. Everything's everything's upside down. Verse 54 and 55 tell us all this action, all these things God is doing, uh, God is doing are in fulfillment to promises he made to Abraham and Israel. God has remembered everything he promised, and he's bringing it to pass. So that's what Mary's saying in her her song. Now, you probably have a few questions about this. So do I. Here are my questions. I'll give two. 
Why is Mary speaking in the past tense? You thought about that? Jesus is barely conceived, still some sort of embryo or whatever. But Mary speaks as if all these actions are finished, when clearly they are at at best sort of beginning to take place. They have not yet taken place. Well, the answer to that question is, Mary is so sure God will act. She so clearly knows what God is up to that she can speak about future events as if they're already past, as if they're already done. A helpful equivalent here uh, to think about this is uh, thinking about the sun rising. We speak with great certainty that whatever else happens on earth, whatever socioeconomic, political changes come to earth, we are extremely sure that the earth will continue to spin, the sun will come up tomorrow. Now, of course, in Ottawa, it'll be behind the clouds or whatever, but we know it, it, it is there all the same. We have unbelievable certainty the sun will rise tomorrow. So we can speak about it as if it's already true. And through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mary is that sure about what God is doing. She speaks about it as if it's already happened. Now, my second question is a little more difficult to answer. And it's this. Aren't there lots of hungry people who aren't filled with good things? Aren't there lots of proud people who remain unscattered? Don't don't we see plenty of mighty people still sitting atop their thrones? In short, did this song come true? Well, I think we ought to answer that is that, and actually Jim referred to it briefly earlier, but prophecies have these multiple fulfillments. They have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. See, and in the relatively short term, if you just think of Jesus' life, what is said here does happen spiritually, and it does happen to a limited extent physically. So spiritually, we can say, no question, the hungry spiritual people, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they get filled. The humble spiritual people are raised up. The proud are removed, you know, etc. But also physically, in the ministry of Jesus, hungry people are fed. Lowly people are raised up. The proud and the mighty are challenged. That's sort of the near fulfillment. But we also have to say with a song like this is that there's a far fulfillment still to come. The world has not been renewed yet. Systems of power and oppression, they're 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 still here. We wait on the far fulfillment when Jesus won't simply be renewing people, but he'll renew all things. See, people are the first fruits. They're the first sort of bushel of the harvest. But eventually the world itself will be straightened out. And that is when we will be able to say, yes, all of the proud have been scattered. All of the hungry have been fed. The first advent, the incarnation of Jesus, kicked off this renewal. And the second advent, the second coming of Jesus, is when it finishes. Now, what does this song mean to the people who lived in Mary's time? How would they have understood this? Well, it meant all the Old Testament promises were coming true. If you know the Bible well, you'll be able to kind of catch hints that Mary's words here are just kind of dripping with Old Testament allusions and promises. You can track almost every word here to a psalm or a prophecy or a promise to Abraham or a promise to David. Um, you know when you're doing dishes after supper? And um, here, here's how I do dishes. Maybe, maybe it's not the right way. You can tell me afterwards. But you run the water a little bit. It gets nice and warm. Then you put the stopper in to fill up the sink. And then for me, you squeeze a little bit of the dish soap in the bottom of the sink. And when the warm water hits the dish soap, what happens? Bubbles, right? And then it, it foams up, produces all these bubbles. 
I guess, useful for cleaning dishes, cutting, cutting through the grease, whatever the commercial says. Inside of Mary are centuries of stories, songs, prophecies, hope. The hopes and fears of all the years, right? It's how we sing it. It's liquid dish soap of, of, of biblical proportions inside of Mary. And what's happening is that in this beautiful moment at just the right time, it comes foaming out of her. It comes bubbling out of here. All the Old Testament predictions, they're, they're, they're all going to find their expression and fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Even though Rome still rules the outside world. And you got Herod, and you have Pilate, and you have Caesar Augustus. They're all doing their thing. All the promises made to all the ancestors, they're all in motion. That's, how this, that's what this song would have meant to people who lived in Mary's time. But finally, let me just answer this question. What do, what do we do with all of this? I said after that first part, remember, we should be looking to see, is Jesus at work in me the way that he was in Mary? We're hoping Christ will be born in our hearts the way that he was born in Mary. But this second section is broadening our horizons. We aren't zoomed in on our little lives anymore. Christmas isn't just about the presents that have your name written on them. Jesus didn't just come for you. There is a whole cosmos that Jesus is renewing. That's what we're reminded of here. There are whole systems of oppression that are going to get thrown down. There are, there are mammoth injustices that are going to be set right. See, to all of us who understand, not only do we each need a savior, but the world itself needs to be saved. Well, that's good news. A savior is on the way. In fact, he's already come. He is already beginning this process of making all things new. And in all the ways in which we groan under the weight of a sinful planet, all the injustices in a world gone wrong, the utter unfixability of life, we remember as surely as Christ came once, so he will come again. And he will put everything right. Let's pray. Lord, we long to glorify you like Mary, to have our souls and spirits rejoice in what you have done. And as we look back and are grateful and thankful for this first coming, we also look forward in hope, in eager expectation of your coming again when you will put all things to right, when the words of this song will, will truly and ultimately and finally come to pass. And we thank you that you have remembered your servants, you have remembered your mercy, and you have spoken to all of us forever. We thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.